Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 16. It says, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? <clears throat> weary men? Will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Amen. And then Titus 3, verses 4 to 8. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. <clears throat> At Christmas time, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> At Christmas time, we think on the birth of the Son of God, rightly so. Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. He was conceived by, children, what do we say in the creed? Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, to say these things should draw our minds to the two natures of Christ. He is fully God, and he is fully man. He is the one through whom all things were made, as we heard from John 1 this morning. But he is also the one through whose death all things were reconciled to God. We say things about both natures, both his divine nature and his human nature, but we're really talking about the singular person of Jesus Christ. He is the creator, but he's also the savior. He lives eternally, but he died and bled on the cross. So far, a brief meditation on the two natures. But what else should we think about on Christmas? I hinted at it earlier. But what we should think about on Christmas is not just the two natures of Christ, but the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, verses 4 to 8, sets before us these various roles played by the members of the Trinity in our salvation. You'll notice at the first of the passage that the person referenced is God, our Savior. 
Then a couple lines down, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. The Holy Spirit is the agent of our regeneration and our renewal. Now think about those two terms for just a moment. I'm going to read a quote from John Chrysostom in a second. But think about those two terms for just a moment. Regeneration is not just a partial cleansing. Renewal is not just a slight recharge, as it were. But those words communicate the idea of a total change of life. A total and full renewal. A giving of new life, or as is communicated in John's Gospel, chapter 3, a new birth. And Chrysostom says about this, How were we drowned in wickedness so that we could not be purified, but needed a new birth? For this is implied by regeneration, a re-giving of life. For as when a house is in a ruinous state, no one places props under it nor makes any addition to the old building, but pulls it down to its foundations and rebuilds it anew. So in our case, God has not repaired us, but has made us anew. And this is the renewing of the Holy Ghost. He has made us new men. How? By his Spirit. Thinking on our salvation in that way, it's not something that we often consider at Christmas. We think about, again, the mystery of the two natures of Christ. But what about the salvation that this two-natured, one-personed man was coming to accomplish? The third person mentioned is just after the mention of the Spirit in Titus 3. It is Jesus Christ our Savior. We're told of God, our Savior. We're told of the Holy Spirit, and we're told of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is the one that Titus says, excuse me, that Paul says, um, he pours out abundantly upon us the Holy Spirit. So we see all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Well, how does this directly relate to Christmas? Well, I want to draw your attention to the first phrase of uh, Titus 3, printed there in, in your bulletin. It's the first bit of verse 4. And you notice that there's a bunch of commas all the way down to the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5th line before you finally see a period. As Paul often does, he strings together these long uh, sentences. The first phrase is going to be the first thing we'll look at, and then the last phrase will be the second thing we look at. We're kind of framing our minds around when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, and then, at the end of that sentence, by His grace, us becoming heirs, according to the hope of eternal life. What is this, this first phrase, this time referred to, when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. It is the time of the incarnation of the Son of God, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. One writer says that this describes the event which inaugurated the saving activity of God. It doesn't mean that no one was saved before this, but... 
that before the, love, before the birth of Christ, we're not saying that the kindness and love of God our Savior were hidden. Paul is simply saying that it had not yet appeared. It had not appeared in the way that it would appear. And you know this experience in reading the Old Testament versus the New. It's not that things are hidden in the Old Testament. It's just they're not as clear as they are in the New. And Paul is getting at this idea. This time when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. When did this happen or when did it begin per se? It was at the birth of Christ. At that moment, the saving purposes of God became clearer than they ever had been. We know this by reading the Gospels where uh, the various Gospel writers say, as it is written, or that the Scripture may be fulfilled. They're pointing us back to the fact that the Old Testament had promised these things, had predicted these things. In the Gospels, the abundant life lay in the manger. The God who sustained all things, nursed at the breast of his mother, the Virgin Mary. All of these things are known to us as the time at which the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared. As I promised, the second way this relates to Christmas is the connection to sonship that comes at the end of that long opening sentence. This phrase is that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So because the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, you can jump down to the next phrase and see that this is His ultimate point, that everything happens in between that first phrase and that last phrase as uh, steps to show that the first phrase is fulfilled in the last. Because the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, man can become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is, inheritors of eternal life, but specifically to the hope of eternal life. The incarnation of, the God, of God the Son, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, it opened the way that all might become heirs and share in the inheritance with Him who has earned eternal life for us. You might wonder, children, what it is that you receive ultimately as Christians. What, what do you get out of it? You get a lot of things, but one of those things is an inheritance that Jesus himself has earned. Something that he has bought for you with his own blood. This work of making us heirs began, in some sense... At his first appearing, and it will be culminated, it will be finished at his second appearing at the last day. You see, this work of making us heirs, it is not performed by us. Those of you who've been in adult Sunday school, you kind of catch the same vibe here in Titus 3, verses 4 to 8, that we've been thinking about in Colossians 1. The work of making us heirs is not performed by us. 
We are totally passive in receiving this. Paul even seems to ground the coming forth of the kindness and love of God, not by our works. Notice he says, after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Meaning, this showing of his kindness, this showing of his love, was not compelled by any works that we had done. And further, he says, he did not save us because of any works that we had done, even though our works could be described as righteous. He has done so exclusively because of his mercy. He saves us out of his mercy. It is not something that we can earn, not something that we can compel God to perform in us. God looks on his people knowing that they are bound in sin, as we read Chrysostom saying earlier, knowing that there was nothing in them to bring forth the Son, and there was also nothing compelling the Father to send the Son. It was his free mercy through his kindness and love that brought Christ forth. If you want to say that something compelled God to send the Son to redeem us from sin, it was his kindness and his love that compelled him to act in this way. But it was not us. No work of righteousness brought him down. No work of righteousness caused God to give us mercy. His coming and his applying of our salvation is according to his mercy. And like our catechism question said before our prayer, we can answer this question, how does God apply this mercy? This is something that I dwell on a bit in communicants class. When I talk to those who are preparing to take the Lord's Supper for the first time, indeed for uh, the rest of their life, what good is the work that Christ accomplished if you can't have it? What good is it if he just took it into heaven with him and it remains there? How do we receive it? How is it applied to us? Well, Paul says in Titus, it is through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That is to say, the Holy Spirit takes what Christ has accomplished. Though Christ be in heaven, he unites us to that Christ by his own power as God, the Holy Spirit. What, Titus, what Paul is echoing here in Titus is the same thing that Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3. Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And this comes to us because the process of our salvation, because it wasn't accomplished in a moment. It wasn't accomplished uh, in a brief period of time, but it was accomplished over several years. Indeed, you might say it was accomplished from eternity past. This comes to us because this process of our salvation was inaugurated. It began at the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The scriptures teach that the saints of old looked forward to his coming. And we look back to the fact that he has come and will come again. He has accomplished this. The same Jesus Christ, our Savior, who pours out the Spirit 
is the same Jesus Christ whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. The babe in the manger would one day grow into a man who would be crucified and buried and raised and ascend in order to pour out the Holy Spirit upon his people. As you read through Titus 3, maybe you notice Paul basically treats the birth of Christ all the way to Pentecost as one event. He just spends a few verses describing that entire frame of Christ's life and the day of Pentecost. He appears and then he washes by the Spirit. All so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice it doesn't say heirs according to eternal life. But what Paul is wanting to accent is the fact that we have the hope of eternal life. Listen to this explanation of the hope of eternal life. Not just eternal life, but the hope of it. Quote, he had said that we have been saved through the mercy of God. But our salvation is as yet hidden. And therefore he now says that we are heirs of life. Not because we have arrived at the present possession of it. But because hope brings to us full and complete certainty of it. The meaning may be thus summed up. Having been dead, we were restored to life through the grace of Christ when God the Father bestowed on us his spirit by whose power we have been purified and renewed. Our salvation consists in this. But because we are still in the world, we do not yet enjoy eternal life, but only obtain it by hoping Hoping the one who has appeared as the loving kindness, the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, the one who has appeared, has given to us a salvation that is yet hidden. As I wrote to you in the email this week to prepare you for the Lord's Day, as printed in the bulletin from this morning, it has not yet appeared what we shall be. Meaning we hope yet for it. But we know that when he comes, we shall be like him, for we shall be as he is. We hope towards eternal life in some sense. Yes, we're certain of our receiving it now, but there is a sense, a great sense in which we hope for eternal life. This spacious way that most will use the term hope around Christmas gives us reason To think, you know, those signs that people put in their homes and whatnot, where they put words up at various seasons, just singular words, right? They'll often put signs up that say, hope. What is it that we have our hope renewed towards at Christmas? It is the hope of eternal life that was brought about by the Lord Jesus. Friends, that hope began to be ours the moment that he was conceived. 
He was conceived and born under the law for us that we might be justified through him. That is declared innocent, cleared before God due to his own righteousness. Maybe you have a sign that says hope or some other Christmas decoration or maybe maybe even, God forbid, an ugly Christmas sweater that says hope. But you must know that the hope of Christmas, that the hope of Christians is not yet seen, even by those who have already gone to be with the Lord in their soul. They only know the Lord fully in their souls. Their body yet remains. Their body lies in the grave, waiting that final day of full justification, where body and soul are joined. So I ask you, until then, what are we to do? What are you to do? Dear Christian, this comes in at the last verse of what Paul said in Titus 3. You are to live performing good works. To phrase it differently, in light of a book that I've been reading, you are to live as the good gifts of God towards others. You are to live as the good gifts of God towards others. Let me bring this together for you. Sometimes we think of the gifts of God that he has given us. The things that are coming to us, they are gifts of God. And that's right. But we collectively as the church and individually as Christians are, as we heard this morning, the light of the world. You are, dear Christian, a gift To all whom you serve, you memorialize the the gift that Christ has been to you when you live in gratitude to him towards others. You see, there is a great joy that comes in this because you begin to know that the Lord has not just redeemed you for himself, but for others. You show gratitude to him by living according to your calling. You are, as Paul says here, profitable to all when you submit to the Lord's order in your life and live according to his teachings. There will be joy. There will be hope. There will be delight in God and in one another when we begin to bow the knee as heirs do to receive their inheritance and live lives of joyful obedience to him who gives us that inheritance. So you think of inheritance and maybe you think of the parable of the prodigal son. There was one who basically awaited his inheritance from his father. He waited in humility, though he went a bit off off course at the end. But there was another who demanded his inheritance. We as Christians live the life of humble submission with the knee bowed, waiting for our inheritance. And we serve God and others until that day that we receive it in its fullness. I don't know if you noticed, but in Titus 1.8, Paul, or 3.8, excuse me, um, Paul uses this phrase that is very well known to him, from 1 Timothy 1.15, the phrase, uh, this is a faithful saying, 
Maybe you've heard that before. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, This is a faithful saying. That means you can write it down. It's good words. And worthy of all acceptation. What is it in 1 Timothy 1.15? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. But here in Titus 3.8, he tells us of another faithful saying. The verse records those exact words. And I hope you see how important both of those phrases are, that he chooses to accent them in the same way. This is not a phrase that Paul uses over and over again. This is a faithful saying. If the apostle Paul of the Lord Jesus Christ, who had Christ appear to him on the road to Damascus, says, this is a faithful saying, we'd better listen. Understanding first that Christ came into the world to save sinners is a faithful saying, but also that having believed in him, as he says in Titus 3, you ought to be careful to maintain good works. We think of careful as avoiding danger. But careful in this context is pursuing righteousness. To be full of care. To live the life that God has laid out for you. You see, as Christians, especially in light of Christmas, our goal is to be this. To be good and to be profitable to men. When we do this, we're showing gratitude. But also, we're imaging the Savior. For He is good and He is profitable to all men. May the same be said of us as we close this year and begin another, Lord willing, keeping to this faithful saying that is known to us because Christ was born. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord in heaven.